Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. In this podcast, we continue our adult faith formation series in the book of Isaiah, I Am Doing a New Thing, led by Mark Gravrock. The discussion in this episode was recorded on February 20th, 2022. And now, here's Mark with an opening song. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. You are my servant, you are my chosen. You are the child of Abraham, my friend. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong right hand. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. You are my servant, you are my chosen. You are the child of Abraham, my friend. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. And I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong right hand. Gracious God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your utter faithfulness. In complete, also in times when we just don't understand and when it seems completely the opposite, yet we find out that you have been there all along and that your faithfulness is so deep and so confoundingly gracious. Thank you. We ask you to be with us now, Lord. Empower your word by your spirit and open us to what you have for us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Welcome again. Good to have you here. That one of the lines in that in that song, which is one of the lines from Isaiah 41, verse 8, you are my servant, you are my chosen, you are the child of Abraham, my friend. In all of these chapters, Isaiah 40 through 55, there is an ambivalence around that term servant. Sometimes it's singular, servant, but that a singular servant in the Bible can also be a corporate identity too. Um, Israel as a whole or God's people as a whole could be God's servant, singular. Or sometimes it's plural, you are my servants. And that language of God's servant, God's agent, runs throughout these chapters. But now with these particular passages we're gonna look at today, there's uh, all kinds of wonderment around this figure of the servant of the Lord. We've got a couple of pictures this morning. Let's have somebody describe, particularly for those who are, for us, for each other as well, but for those who are listening later on, uh, what's, what's the picture? What are you seeing in the picture? A very disturbed and upset man. A very disturbed and upset man. Yep. And he's in prison even though he's not in prison. He's in prison even though he's not in prison. Say more. Um, 
it, it, it seems to me that he has built his own prison and he can't get out because there's a beautiful tree there and leaves and probably mm. stars up in the sky and he's holding onto the bar of this maybe imaginary prison that he can't get out of. Okay. Yeah, for those of you who are just listening to this and don't have a chance to see it, there's, there are these bars. He's hanging on to one of the bars, uh, parallel uh, horizontal bars, um, kind of all in, on, in a, within an, an oval shape or almost egg shape uh, pattern there. But next to it also is this, this tree with, it looks like it's a fresh and alive with fresh leaves blooming around it. And, uh, so both of, the, both of them are there at once. I wanted to, she mentioned this, I, I want to emphasize the ambivalence because you can't tell, it is not distinct which side of the bars he's on. You can't tell if, if he's looking in at the prisoners. In other words, you're, if you're going to do it with, if, if Isaiah the prophet is looking in at the prisoners or if he is imprisoned. So which side, it's ambivalent as to which side of the... Sure. And then when someone says something about the tone, I really feel color is important in this one, and I'm not qualified to talk about that color. Okay, so first the first the bars, you can't really tell whether he's on the outside looking in or the inside looking out. You don't see anything more of the shape than just these bars. You don't know what they're bars of, but one direction or another. So the, the color, the tone. I think I think the color is important here. I really do. I think it, it adds a mood. So someone want to describe what the colors are? How would you describe the colors? Well, blue, but a, a, a grayish blue. Uh, mm -hmm. and, but the kind of surround with darkness, and the tree he has a an orangish blossom, yeah. and but. for somebody to say mauve. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and his face, I think, what they, she was talking about for the color, his 
face is definitely a vibrant blue and mm -hmm. darker um, blue with the face and the hand. To I think he's about given up. Mm -hmm. The arm is just uh, so there's no energy left in the arm. No energy left in the He's about given up. Yeah. Yeah. There's trees in the background. But the blossoms on. Mm -hmm. No, that's a branch. Yeah, on the other side, maybe he's attempting to get out, if he's out or get in, if he's, I don't know, he's also like the trees. Yeah. On both sides. And the very, the, the gift of the tree that puts the whole thing in motion, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking the colors remind me of dusk or dawn. Either he stayed up all night and he's looking at us on the brink of dawn, uh -huh. or in the threshold time about night time. Hmm. You've got that spot of mauve or whatever that is, off in the distance, a couple of them, is that is that approaching sunrise or approaching dusk, approaching nighttime? I just noticed his finger on his left arm sort of pointing down. Any significance to that? It looks relaxed. His left arm yeah. kind of looks relaxed, but his right is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try to, I don't even remember actually what this painting is called. Um, and I'm not going to try to say whatever the artist may have had in mind. I think it's more important to see what it evokes here. And particularly as we're, again, the, the imagery of imprisonment and of freeing the prisoners runs throughout these chapters. Um, whether they were, I doubt that the people were actually literally behind bars. It appears that during their exile they were they might have been in a ghetto or might have been in a kind of a sequestered area, but, but they don't appear to have been chained or anything like that. But there, there isn't but there is an imprisonment going on in the exile. They are not free to pick up and go back home. Um, and so the issue of uh, those those who sit in darkness, that image is a biblical image talking about those in jail. Those who sit in darkness, those who are imprisoned, uh, there's a message of good news in this in Isaiah for them. Um, and then as we think about moving forward from, from our pandemic into whatever the new chapter is that God has for us that's not going to be the same as it was before, will we be ready to leave our prison? And how much of our prison has been self-imposed and how much of it has been imposed from without? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> Actually, I do have, I have a worry about our children because um, my granddaughter has a lot more fear of germs and, and the lack of, I mean, she is diligent about wearing her mask all the time. And I worry about the kids who have grown up with this concern of germs. We have a generation that may need to grow from there, from a, an imprisonment that's been imposed upon them. Yeah. 
Here's a second a picture. Um, describe what you're seeing. It's almost like it's a mirror image flipped. A mirror image foot. Flipped. Oh, flip, a flipped flip, foot. Flip, yeah. Foot. One person washes yeah. the other's feet, and then you might take turns and do it the other way around. But what's this all about? It looks about? uncomfortable. <laughs> it looks uncomfortable. Yeah. It would take a little bit of mm -hmm. practice yeah. to get that to work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, my thought is that they're washing one another's feet at the same time. Washing one another's feet. Yeah. Is this the same artist? Um, no. Got that same deep blue. I don't know if this is too crazy, but it reminds me of the crucifixion. The, the, the light maybe coming through the foot. I, I, I don't know. Mm. That might be too crazy. On the it other is, hand, yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, Jesus washing our feet is the crucifixion. Is it the same artist? No. I don't think so. I think it's a different one. Same colors. Mm -hmm. I love the the um, the veins mm. on the feet. These are not children's feet. <laughs> nope. And the hands too are very muscular, like they yeah. work hard. And there's a tenderness about how the hands are holding the feet. I do remember the title of this one. The title of this one is um, So to You Too Must. Mm -hmm. You Too Must. Mm -hmm. Which is a biblical reference? Wash the feet. Each other's feet. Yep. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you too must wash one another's feet. And it's, it just really intrigued me that um, you've got both sides going on at the same time. However, however that physically can happen. But it's not like there's one group of us that are the servants and the others who are the recipients of the service. That's not what Christian community looks like. Yeah. I don't want to belabor it, but anything else that you're seeing before we move into, into the scripture? Blessing in, in, in mm. the life 
The gold is blessing and light. That's cool. We are moving into um, this, what's often been called the, the servant songs or the poems of the servant of the Lord. Um, when you hear the term servant in this sort of connection, what, does, what, what, what comes into your mind when you think of that term, servant? Someone who waits on another person. The one who waits on another person. Of as literal table servant or something like that. I think that this is really a difficult, assertive concept. That this, this, our American context is really hard. Why? Because we don't see them. Because we don't see them. We don't see them and we don't think about them. Um, you know, I think in, in times before, you had a maid, you had a hired person, you had. Okay. And, and it's just that, that servant, the words that I think of with servants, I, I think of. Of, of, of a bondedness, uh, maybe, maybe bondedness is the wrong word, but I just think of a, uh, places that we don't have. Serve implies a, 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 a deep, more of a relationship than employment. More of a relationship than employment. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it seems more like you're almost a slave and a servant. Okay. Uh, a slave is not the same thing, but, but there's a there's a deeper divide than we understand. So I have increasingly felt that it's a tough word for us to get. It is. I'm not sure if all of that picked up on the tape for, for, with what Carolyn was saying, but let me just pick up on a few of those things. Uh, one of them is how difficult it is in our context now in America for us even to appreciate or see who the servants are in our community because those who, those who, who carry on those typical servant roles are hidden from us now, where that wasn't always the case before. Uh, those who are the servant class or whatever, are they work at times of day that we don't see them or they work in places where we don't see them. We don't think of them as servants. We don't we think would, of them as... We would never call them servants. Nope. We'd call them um, employees or, or that's their job. That's right. And that's different than a mm -hmm. servant. They don't get paid very well for that job, but that's their job. Yeah. Well, their job. I mean, you know, essential workers. The worker. The essential workers. Essential workers. Are performing services for us. Yes. And maybe now we yep. have a, li a little bit more appreciation because of the pandemic for yep. those that, that work behind the scenes and care for us. It's awkward language for us. Um, socially anyway, because the language of servanthood comes out of cultures where you have, um, so, not all kinds of servants are the same. Uh, some, are, some are bonded, some are owned by their masters, and some are not. Um, in the New Testament, for example, there are two different terms for servant. One of them, the term implies um, not free. You are, that's, and so the term slave often fits that as well. And the, the other term really refers more to the kind of work that the servant does, whether that person is free or slave. And so you can actually have a free or a non-free person doing the same kind of work in the New Testament. The Old, Old Testament's the same, but doesn't use different terms to, just you, you, in, the, in Hebrew you basically just have the one term for a servant. Um, and in context, then you find out whether this servant is owned or not. At the same time, that language of servant, um, the kings 
um, the king's uh, highest, highest um, courtiers, those who are involved in the king's servants, service, are servants of the king. And they're not slaves, typically they are pretty high status folks, but are still servant of so and so. And so servant can also mean agent of, or uh, it's, a, it's a slippery term. It's a, and it's got all kinds of connotations that don't fit our culture very well until we read it out deeply. If anybody is watching Masterpiece Theater around the world in 80 days, yes. that particular character who is the, the servant, uh, there's a lot of focus on him. But just little things like you never see Fogg carrying his own suitcase. That's always the servant who's carrying the suitcase. Right. And um, we don't have any, we really don't have any kind of tradition like that in the United States. Well, it's, it's, and I have a good example of that. Very, um, almost, I can't remember the, our, our first Chinese American governor. Uh, yes. Lott, yes. Gary Lott, thank you. Went to China. He carried his own stuff. Yes. And, I, I remember that story. And, and they were like, yeah. Where's your entourage? <laughs> where's yes, where's yeah. everybody else? How important mm -hmm. are you? He was here. It is. And how important are you that you're, you're you don't have fifty people running around behind you? Yes. Uh, and that I was, remember that story. Yeah. Because and that was, but you know, in our culture, it's like football. Yeah. I mean, it would be a really bad look. Not that there aren't entourages and that happens, but it would be a bad look. So let me read you a passage from the most famous of the servant songs, from Isaiah 53. I bet you've heard these verses before. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. By the way, I'm convinced that you're supposed to read this emphasizing the pronouns. <laughs> then, you, then you hear it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who are we talking about? The suffering servant. The servant. Well, this is a precursor to the Lord. I don't really stop. The precursor to the Lord. Okay. And precursor to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Four, four legs and a tail sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. But. <laughs> sure. You this is Jesus. That? Of course this is Jesus. Um, um, that's the New Testament all over the place is quoting these passages and connecting them with Jesus, with aspects of his ministry and with his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, this is Jesus all over the place. And if you ask... Um, Jewish folks, is this Jesus? Not, much, mm, not so much. Do you anybody know, by the way, what what uh, most Jewish scholarship would say about this servant? Who is it? Nobody totally agrees, of course. But Israel, the people Israel, and they're right. Let me read you another passage. This is from Isaiah 46 the second of the servant songs, Isaiah 46, three. The servant himself is speaking now. And he said to me, God said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There it is, point blank, in so many words. Who is the servant? 
the Bible says it is Israel. Now, as soon as you get that, you've got a problem. Because in the very next verses, it says, Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Wait a minute. The servant who is Israel has been formed and shaped to bring Jacob and Israel back to God? God says, that's too little thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. I'll give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So is this servant Israel or someone who operates on behalf of Israel? We're now stuck in the heart of the mystery of these passages. Okay? And the, the, the really um, prickly mystery of these four poems. There's a fifth one, by the way, that we hear also. We, we just heard it last Sunday or the Sunday before from Isaiah 61. It's often called the fifth servant song, but it's not within these chapters. It's the one that Jesus reads in the synagogue on that Sabbath morning. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, etc., etc. And then he closes, rolls up the scroll and says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There you've got Jesus' own word that this is him. This is he, pardon me. Uh, yeah. Uh, my question is, um, are you saying that the Jewish interpretation of the Hebrew interpretation was not that the Messiah was being um, uh, prophesied this far back, but only in the later period, Zechariah and Yeah, actually let me, let me be a little more precise about that. Um, we, in, in Christian circles, we tend to be pretty sloppy about the term Messiah or Messianic. And for us, often Messianic means anything that has to do with Jesus or gets fulfilled in Jesus, right? Uh, the Messiah specifically is God's anointed one. Um, David was the first Messiah, God's anointed king to lead God's people. And then his dynasty gets anointed. And then once the dynasty fails, then they're look for, looking forward to this anointed king who would come in David's line one day. So in, in narrow, specific terms, when we're talking Messiah, we're talking this anointed king that will someday come, which is why the New Testament is grappling so with, well, why doesn't he look very kingly, that, that whole issue? Um, it's hard to find within the Old Testament any passage that says the Messiah will suffer. So you've got messian stri strictly messianic passages dealing with the coming king, and then you've got passages about this suffering servant. And it's only because of Jesus that we've put those two together as one. Now there is, as you mentioned Zechariah, there is one passage in Zechariah that might get us closer to a king suffering or the, or the shepherd suffering. Um, but you've got to go to Zechariah to find it, not earlier in Isaiah. And so it's that whole, term, the whole issue of what is the Messiah supposed to be is so crucial, especially in conversations between Christians and Jews, that I remember years ago, this is probably 30 years, maybe 40 years ago now, I read a book by Pincus Lapid, who was a Jewish scholar. Um, I love that word Pincus. It's the new, new version of Phineas. But, um, 
And he went through, he, he finally came to the conclusion himself as a Jewish scholar that Jesus was raised from the dead. He, was conclu he concluded, yes, the evidence is clear. Jesus was raised from the dead. But he's not the Messiah. Two different issues. It was just an interesting, interesting argument. But, okay. I wish we had days and days to spend on these passages. I'd like to spend a little time on the ones that we have just to get a flavor of what's going on here. These four passages, the speaker changes. In the first one, God says, here's my servant. Behold my servant. That's chapter 42. In the second one, the servant is speaking. And in the third one, the servant is speaking. And in the last one, Isaiah 53, uh, there's a we who are the speakers through much of it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sufferings. And so there's a we that's gathering around watching the drama of this servant. Um, before I go any farther, let me, let me just add one more piece about Jewish interpretation of the servant. If you were to read these passages of the suffering servant as referring to Israel, well, here is this servant that suffers not for his own crime, but, but carries someone else's suffering. And God promises um, um, restoration. God promises to turn it around. What would that do to you um, as Jewish, as the people of Israel, who have just gone through such horrible suffering? What would be the effect of that for you? Is my question clear? Okay. If this, if this figure of the servant who suffers, not for his own crime, but for bearing others, and then God promises to redeem, God promises to turn it around. If that servant is Israel, how does that help you understand the horror that we've just been through with the exile? Well, that they were a witness and that they are going to be uplifted, and I think it would be glorious. Yeah. I mean, what could be more heartening? There's a witness and a sense of purpose. purpose. Mm -hmm. As God's. You may not like that purpose, but there's a, there's a sense of purpose. Well, it wasn't in it. fun. But yeah. <laughs> but it, sure. you know, but it was meaningful. Yep. Carolyn. Well, I was going to say this must sustain them through the Inquisition, through all the times that they get thrown out again and again. You know, they get thrown out of Spain, they get the Holocaust, yeah. they get thrown here and there. And I mean, these are strong passages to say, okay, we were chosen to be a people that was going to suffer, but God will sustain us and keep us going. Yep. So, I mean, this, this has to be a crucial. Yes. Crucial, crucial words for them. Yeah, think of the people of Israel going through pogrom after pogrom and persecution after persecution and finally the Holocaust and everything else and to get this word that horrible as it's all been, there's some redemptive purpose in it all. That whatever that is, however that works, that would be a hard one to hang on to, but it would be something powerful to hang on to. The, the about servants at the very beginning called them servants and I wanted to ask you know is their redemption and their um, because they are servants 
their, their acceptance of this humiliation is what makes them, makes God um, willing or wanting mm -hmm. to redeem them. Interesting question. And it's got all kinds of prongs going out of it. <laughs> One of them is, um, is there some sense that because they're willing to be this suffering figure that bears the crimes of others, um, that that, that, that God, then, so that makes God more disposed to redeem them and set them free. Um, feels like quid pro pro, and I'm not comfortable with well, that. Well, I'm not that, either. <laughs> I, don't Exactly. I want. I want to actually turn turn around the opposite way. What you were wrestling with um, is it that because they are willing to go through this suffering, God is willing to step up and redeem, or is it because they are already God's servant that they've been called into this role? Um, is that why they suffer? And is that why, and, and God's faithfulness running through it to redemption and freedom? Well, I would say yes to that, except that the whole first 40 or 30 some uh, chapters of Isaiah are about how wicked they were and how unfaithful they were and how Bingo. God is on himself. <laughs> I was waiting for someone to come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> Chapters that we, we hardly ever read because yep. they are really tough. So this this actually is the biggest problem in um, traditional Jewish understanding. From to my in my opinion, the, the the biggest problem of traditional Jewish understanding of the servant figure because it's very clear, especially in Isaiah 53, that this servant is innocent. That this servant suffers not for his own crime at all. You know that's that's what the passage is actually saying. It's saying. Uh, we looked at him and all of his sufferings and figured, well, crap, he, he brought this on himself. He deserved it. And then we've come to realize, no, surely he's borne our griefs. He's borne our iniquities. On him was the, was the chastisement that made us whole. That's the whole point of Isaiah 53, is that this servant is utterly innocent. Um, this is a travesty of justice, and somehow his suffering bears others. Um, well, if you ask... We've been reading in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, and 40 on, um, has Isaiah been saying Israel was innocent in all of this? Nope. In fact, have they even changed during exile? Nope. We're still the dolts that we were before. We're still as broken as we were before. So there's the biggest fly in the ointment about seeing this as, seeing Israel as the servant, suffering innocently on behalf of others. Or is it? <laughs> you know, you can, if you ramp this up, 
I mean, I, and, and I, I agree with you that individuality, nobody, but I mean, I keep thinking back of the scapegoat because many times Israel has served as a scapegoat to our yes. inequities again and again. Now, were the individual people, did they do things? But as a corporate, you know, they didn't deserve it as a corporate group. I mean, I, I would argue that, but individually, who knows? But I mean, again and again, Christians have, have sinned, and other groups have sinned against them, and they have they've fulfilled that role. I think that's a powerful way for us who are non-Jews. I don't know, by the way, whether any of you are Jewish. My grandmother on her deathbed confessed that there was a Jew in our ancestry, which makes me 132nd Jewish. <laughs> so I, and there are 31 30 seconds Norwegian, so I claim the chosen people on both sides. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, you know, I don't know whether there's, whether, whether, are there any of us who are Jewish here? And it's possible that some of you are. But for those of us that are not Jewish, um, to listen to, to read Isaiah 53 and to see the we in that, in, that, in that chapter is the nations looking on. It's pretty clear as you look in the early verses that this is the nations utterly astounded at what God's doing. The nations are looking on at the suffering of this servant and saying, we've misread this altogether. And this servant has been bearing our crimes. That, I think that's a really good, accurate way to read it. This is where I have a real problem with the Old, Old Testament sometimes, is the cause and effect. You know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, yep. we are wonderful people, and we are praying well, so we're getting good food, and we're um, leading the high life. And then we start sinning, and because we sin, we get carried away to Babylon, or we, yeah. do, we have some other kind of punishment kind of thing. And that's so far from our understanding yeah. of God that, that Except I Except that it's still hanging on in our it. bones. Yeah. No, I agree with you, and I, but I would all, and I would also want to encourage you as you read the Old Testament to watch for the counter-argument because the Old Testament itself is arguing against that very notion, even while some passages are saying it point blank. It's, oh yeah, the good will be, God will do good to the good and, and, the, and the wicked will get theirs. There are plenty of other passages where it's fighting that very notion and saying, why isn't this working out? What's, what really is going on here? It's far more dynamic within the scripture than we really usually read it at face value. Would you turn, please, to Isaiah 42? We'll just sample a little bit. Would someone read for us, please, one, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In this law the islands will put their hope. Thank you. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, my, my, 
copyright 1978 NIV. I should have been looking at that. That's okay. The, the Bible is actually older than that anyway. <laughs> yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yes. Um, did you see what the servant's primary task is? We only said it three times. Justice. Justice for the nations. Here you've had injustice done to Israel and several other nations as well. And now justice is going to be done. If we had nothing but this passage, we might think that the servant is Cyrus. Here's my servant. I'm bringing this servant in to set the nations right, to set right what's gone wrong. Israel's been crying out saying, God, do you pay any attention to our justice? Um, have you not heard? Um, now, as soon as, I, as soon as I look at that possibility that some scholars have suggested that this might be about Cyrus, I have a little bit of trouble with verse, verses 2 and 3. Have you ever seen a conqueror come in really quiet and gentle, not breaking a bruised reed and not snuffing out a guttering candle? Is that what conquering heroes do? Not usually. So from the very beginning then, we've got this image of the servant who comes and is to bring justice to the nations. But this is not going to be a top-down, heavy-handed power play of justice. This is gently done. Matthew quotes this passage, by the way, for Je not for Jesus' death, but for his ministry. Uh, early on in the Gospel of Matthew, when he talks about how Jesus carried on his ministry, he refers directly to this passage, that this is how Jesus operates. Gently, this is gentle, 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 powerful justice. However, it's going to work. Yeah, but once Cyrus conquered Babylon, then he gently, quietly said, "Israelites, you, you leave." Okay, there you go. Not so gentle with Babylon, but gentle with <laughs> Israel and the other captive folks. Yeah, that makes sense. Would you turn to chapter 49, please? We're just hopping, skipping, and jumping through these. This time, uh, the speaker is the servant himself. And so, middle of verse 1, uh, the Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. Um, then this next, next line, verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me like a polished, he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. What kind of, uh, what kind of job does this servant have? Power. Power. Power? What sort of power? Well, he's going to have a sword. Um, he's going to um, be quiet but polish his arrows. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to be ready. <laughs> so in a way, he's God's weapon. He's, he's God's arrows and bow and, and all of that, a sharp sword. But what will the actual tool be? But if it's hidden, it's like a secret weapon. Sounds a secret weapon. Sounds yeah. like God's assassin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he may be a speaker. What's that? He may be a speaker of something. A speaker. Why do you say that? 
He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Yeah. The weapon is his mouth. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. What kind of a an agent in scripture does he make you, does that make you think of? Prophets. Prophets. This is very much and some, some scholars would look at this and say, oh, maybe we're talking about Second Isaiah himself. Maybe this is part of Second Isaiah's cause to be this this spokesperson for God who will come who will be God's uh, secret weapon. And by the power of this explosive word, will set Israel free from their bondage. Um, and within this, within this portion here, it works. This is a this is a very very much a prophetic kind of role here, a spokesperson role for God. Then, uh, verse three, you can start to see how the how this servant is experiencing his work. How's it going? I've been laboring in vain. All my energy has gone for nothing. I've been speaking and speaking to these folks and they don't listen to one bit. But I've been doing what you told me to do, but nothing's working. A little frustration going on here. And I love how God responds. Verse five, okay, well, this job's been too small then. I'm gonna make it bigger. <laughs> you, see, you think bringing, bringing freedom, bringing light in, into the darkness for Israel was enough. No, I'm going to make you a light to the nations so that my salvation will reach to, like, I'm just doubling your, or quadrupling your job description here. Thanks. And then we're right in the heart of this, is that mystery that this is, this servant is Israel, but called with this mission first to Israel and then to the nations. I'm going to skip on to another. Would you turn to chapter 50, please? Chapter 50, verse 4, starts out with another really clear um, prophetic kind of image. The Lord has given me the tongue of a teacher so that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. That language of weariness, do you remember way back at the end of chapter 40? Um, Those who wait on the Lord will redeem their, will renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like Eagle. I, yeah, I keep screwing it up at home and saying beagles or something. <laughs> I get to the class and I can't remember the right one. <laughs> end up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Israel has been weary in its, in its exile all this time. And so here's the prophet uh, called to sustain the weary with a word from God. So day by day, God awakens this agent with a word to listen and learn and then share that with the weary. By the way, while I was in pastoral ministry, I found this, this verse just really potent for what it means to be a pastor, to listen to the word and sustain the weary with that word. And we do that for one another. It's not just one way. We do it together in the Christian community. Um, as you go on in this passage, um, just scan down through verses 5 through 9. And tell me what the servant is experiencing and how the servant is responding to it. What they did to Jesus when they were getting ready to crucify him. Boy, that sounds like there's an awful lot of pieces in there that, that are connected, that, that uh, dovetail with what happens, happens to Jesus on the way to the cross. 
Yeah. I think this kind of go right to the the um, what we heard in the sermon today or whatever in the gospel reading. In other words, here's you know, if somebody takes something of yours, you know, don't hate them, give them go back and forth. In other words, this person is being really persecuted, yeah. but he is not to respond in kind. He is to yeah. suffer suffer and not get revenge. As you move through these four poems, uh, the sense of, of what the servant has to experience and suffer grows. It gets worse and worse with each poem. And with this one, all kinds of uh, abuse, ill treatment, um, the kind of thing that Jesus was saying in the passage today, to turn the other cheek and let them pluck out the hairs on that side too or whatever. I know there are lots of different ways to read that passage. Um, and how is the servant responding to it? Where are you? Verse 7 now. Isaiah 50, verse 7. <coughs> the Lord is going to help him. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. God's encouraging him, and he's... So this servant has a, commit, a committed faithfulness to the task and to, and to God and is going to stand in, and in the face of abuse and continue to do what God's called him to do. Um, trusting that God will vindicate and turn this around. Then when you get to Isaiah 52, 52 to 53, that's when you get this magnificent, surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows, uh, that amazing passage. I want to, we've, before, uh, we, we've got about seven minutes left. Um, let me tell you who the servant is. I'm going to answer the question, okay? Um, at the bottom of your page, and for those of you that are uh, listening to this, other, what, what the, today's handout has a chart with these four passages and getting at who's the speaker, what's the servant's task, what's the servant's target audience, et cetera, in each of these. So it's just a way to kind of summarize what's going on in the four. But at the very, at the very bottom of the page, I've drawn a long flat X um, with a cross in the middle. Um, the, so here's who the servant is. First of all, the servant is Israel. Scripture says that point blank. And I want you to think about the call of Israel from the very beginning when God called Sarah and Abraham and said, go with me, I've got these things I'm going to do for you. And then through you, all nations are going to find blessing. You're going to be my agent. Now, servant language doesn't show up there, but, but there's a call. There is a role that this family of Abraham and Sarah is to play as, as a, a, a unique um, piece of God's work in this world. Their very existence is meant to be blessing for others. They're meant to be a conduit of God's grace for the world. That's the servant of the Lord. Uh, they didn't fulfill it all that well. Um, neither have we, by the way, in case you're wondering. Um, I don't know that Christians on the other side have done any, any better than Jews on the, on the left side of the picture. Um, as you, as the uh, as this, this X narrows down, it kind of funnels down toward the center, you get a kind of a sense of a, there, are, there is a faithful minority within Israel. 
And especially you'll get that in the last chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 56 to 66. There's the rest of the community out there that's really not very faithful. But you've got the servants of the Lord, the servants of God who are living out the, living out the mission on behalf of the whole community. But there's always a faithful subset that's, that's trying, to, trying to stand up and listen to God's call and follow. Not perfectly by any means. And surely among those who went off into exile, there were still some faithful people that got carted off with the rest. At the very center is the cross. So here's what I want to say. Jesus is Israel. That's who Jesus is. That's not all that Jesus is. Jesus is lots of things, okay? But the part of who Jesus is, is Israel narrowed down to one person who will finally live out this call faithfully. Um, Matthew says, Matthew 1 quotes the prophecy that says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt have I called my son. Um, to, for Matthew to quote that, out of Egypt I called my son. He means, of course, they had to go to Egypt and came back again. But there's more to it, that when you read that passage in Hosea, Israel's God's son, God's child, is the people Israel as a whole. And if you read that all the way through, this, that child was a brat. It's, those are, don't, don't take the, the, the Jesus stuff too literally, because then you've got a bratty Jesus in all this. Um, but here is Jesus living out the call that Israel was always called to be for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the world. So it's, that's only one piece of who Jesus is. But when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus is living out um, God's redemptive purposes for us, and Jesus is living out the call and mission of God's people from the very beginning to bear to bear the wounds of the world, to bear the, need, the to bear the crimes of the world, to bear the brokenness of the world, and then he rises from the dead. And along the way, he called a few disciples, and they were really, really faithful, right? <laughs> Not so much, but they tried, except for when they didn't. Uh, so here's a, here's a faithful, somewhat faithful cadre. Um, that's trying to live out the purposes for the sake of the whole community. And then the, as the arrow spreads out to the right, that becomes the whole church called to live out, that the church is the servant of the Lord, called to live out the mission of Jesus, who is called to live out what Israel was always called to be. So who is the servant? The servant is Israel. The servant is the faithful among Israel, including this prophet. The servant is Jesus above all. The servant is the faithful among the followers of Jesus, the servant is the whole church of Christ that's sometimes faithful, sometimes not. But all of us called to live out this redemptive role for the world. Um, there's a passage in Colossians. It's Colossians 1. It's a puzzling passage. 124. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul's own sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. You ever read that one before? What's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Wasn't it all enough? Wasn't it over and done? 
But the body of Christ lives on and continues to live out those redemptive purposes. Colossians 1, verse 24. Okay, I've said my spiel. You've got two minutes to have at it. Well, is, is that why so many times in the, in the now I'm not Roman Catholic, but there's a lot of stigma, you know, for saints and things where they have sufferings, or is that, do they kind of, does that kind of go back to that a little bit? I think so. I think so, whatever the truth of that is. And I think for, for someone like Francis of Assisi, I believe that happened to him. Um, whatever the reason that he is, he is living out in his own body um, the call of Jesus, which is the call of the servant of the Lord. Yeah, I think so. Yep. This brings up Jan's sermon today. I'm sitting there and I'm saying, do I really have to love those people Has anybody else had more trouble with that during the pandemic and during the last, last several years? Yes. We don't have to go any, we, we don't have to go any further. Just it's harder to do it now. Yeah. But we have to remember that we are the dominant culture. We are. It, it, there's a real sense in which we are the battle. Yes. Yeah, and I want to say a, a couple of things. One is um, that this is going to be radically countercultural for us, and that just as Israel had, went back from their exile and had to learn how to be the people of God when they longer, no longer called the shots, um, and a different kind of world. We as the church are needing to do the same thing, to, to relearn what it means to be the servant people of God in a way that will be healthy and life-giving for others and not be the dominant culture and not tie into that. The second thing I want to say is the only reason any of this works is because Jesus is also God here in the flesh doing what, doing what we need God to do. <laughs> That as Jesus hangs on the cross, he is living out Israel's call. And he is, he is being once and for all who God always is for the world. Does that make sense? I think we have to quit. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, God, for being the servant God that you are. And for calling us into the mystery of your servanthood. Forgive us, transform us. Thank you that you have carried us. Help us now to bear you in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.